Luke 6, 12-23 In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The Gospel of the Lord. People are designated as God's representatives. They're created in his image, as his regents. They are agents of the kingdom, tasked with dominion, not a harsh subjugation, but a careful cultivation of the land and all that lives in it. Now, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you know what's coming next. There's a major disruption in the creation, in the kingdom. Turning to Genesis 3, we find that man and woman, the man and woman that God has created, are being deceived by a serpent. And in this deception, the character of God is being questioned. God had placed people in a garden. The people were free to eat from any tree in the garden except for one the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as it is called. The serpent skillfully twists words, asking if God had really forbidden eating from all the trees in the garden, and convinces Eve to eat the prohibited fruit. Now, this is not just about knowing about good and evil, as the tree's name might imply. It's about determining what good and evil are. That's what's wrapped up in the word that's translated as knowledge or knowing in English. That work of defining good and evil with authority is what was reserved for God. We're not talking about creating evil, but, but defining it, identifying it. And this is what the serpent urges the people to take on for themselves. They're urged to reject the lordship of God and to claim it as their own. To take the authority of moral judgment away from God and put it on us. It's subtly suggested that God is not a trustworthy ruler. So Eve eats, Adam eats, and in that act, we have a fracturing of relationship. The kingdom's broken apart. Adam and Eve hide from God, and they feel ashamed even in relationship with each other. 
They're no longer acting as royal representatives, but have chosen to try to usurp the throne, the throne itself, acting as rulers instead of stewards. And they end up banished from the land, the garden. And so the three parts of a kingdom are broken. Now, God doesn't just abandon his creation and leave people to do whatever. He chooses people through whom to bring about a restoration. He chooses a man named Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. God walks with Abraham and his descendants, pledging to be faithful to them even when they are not faithful to him. Here we have a promise being given by God, a promise of a restored kingdom. God tells Abraham to go into a land that I will show you, and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. We see a promise of God with his people together in a land where all flourishes, a kingdom. Well, fast forward a few hundred years. God raises up a man named Moses when his people are enslaved in Egypt. And through Moses, God leads them out of slavery into what we call the promised land. It's a land of flowing with milk and honey. Here we start to see a more formal constitution of a kingdom, in a sense foreshadowing what is hoped for. God leads his people by a cloud by day, by a pillar of fire by night, and then God establishes a covenant with his people as they enter into the land. And we're going to return to this in a moment, to this moment in a bit, because it ties directly into our reading in Luke about what Jesus is doing. Uh, this is, it'll be our Old Testament reading in Deuteronomy. But before we get to that, we'll just continue on with this historical overview of the kingdom. Um, after God's people have entered into the promised land and they've been there for a while, they start to want to be like all the other people groups they see around them. Groups with kings ruling over them, human kings, and God grants the request. And while there's a couple of decent human kings uh, in Israel's history, for the most part, the Israelite monarchy is a disaster. Their first king, Saul, is too afraid to lead at first, and King David, who's generally regarded as one of the good ones, comes to the end of his reign seeing his son trying to kill him. And most of the kings end up leading God's people to worship other gods and to chase control and wealth and power. God gets pushed to the side, and the kings ultimately act in the same matter, manner as Adam and Eve in the garden. The result is a failed kingdom. The nation is split in two, and the people are exiled. And yet it is while they are in exile that a hope arises for a new restored kingdom. It's the prophesied kingdom. The kingdom which Isaiah and Zechariah and Amos and all the other Old Testament prophets speak of. A savior, a messiah, a new king will rise up and liberate Israel, defeat her enemies, and usher in a time of peace. It is these prophecies that have whipped up crowds into a frenzy by the time Jesus shows up on the scene. Israel is ruled by the Roman Empire, it's been hundreds of years of waiting since the last of the prophets have spoken. There have been others who have risen up claiming to be the Messiah. They've gained a following and were executed by Roman authorities and their movements crushed. So there's a lot of interest in this man from Nazareth named Jesus who shows up on the scene. And what he's doing in our passage in Luke 
is deliberately echoing some important events from Israel's history as a nod to who he is claiming to be. His choosing 12 disciples, his location coming down from a mountain, his speaking blessings and woes, they all have a precedent. And here's where we need to take a look at our reading from Deuteronomy. The reading in Deuteronomy, it's not the full passage. It's kind of excerpts because it's a really long reading. But the events that uh, take place there are taking place close to the end of Moses' life. So Moses had led God's people up to the brink of entering into the promised land. They're standing there. They're, they're waiting to enter. Moses knows he's not going to enter in. Um, but his successor, Joshua, will lead God's people into the promised land. And so Deuteronomy, in a sense, is laying the ground rules for this kingdom arrangement that's being entered into. God and his people in the land, this is all, they're on the brink of it. And so some of the things that we read in the book of Deuteronomy we're familiar with, like the Ten Commandments. Other things are more obscure. The kingdom arrangement that they're entering into is, is known as a covenant. God made a covenant with Moses up on top of Mount Sinai. Um, you may be familiar with the story of Moses receiving stone tablets with the Ten Commandments inscribed on them. A central part of this whole arrangement that's being made is that God pledges to bless his people and his people pledge to obey the requirements of the covenant. And now that they're entering into the land, we see all the elements of a kingdom coming into place. And so the covenant needs to be formalized. So our reading from Deuteronomy 27 and 28 highlights a ritual that the people are supposed to enact once they've crossed into the promised land. The whole thing isn't written out because it's really long, but the record of them actually doing this is found in Joshua chapter 8. What's described in Deuteronomy is that the people of Israel, 12 tribes, are to be divided into two groups of six tribes. They're to go to a location where there's two mountains that face each other, Mount Ebal on one side and Mount Gerizim on the other. And there's this valley in the middle that's separating. Half of the people of God are up on one side of Mount Ebal, facing the other half who are on the side of Mount Gerizim. So if you picture it, there's thousands and thousands of people up on the side of Mount Ebal, and they're to shout out the curses that are to befall on them if they break the covenant. And thousands and thousands of people are up on Mount Gerizim, and they're to shout out the blessings that come from living again according to the commandments of God. Right? This is a time before like big sports stadiums, but, but you can imagine the energy of the event. Right? This is a defining moment for God's people. And this moment forms a core part of the memory of what it means to be God's people. So when Jesus shows up, having just come down from a mountain, having chosen 12 disciples, and then he starts a sermon with pronouncing blessings and woes, people know what's being referenced, right? They, they, they realize what's being claimed, and it's big. One, one way to think of it is, um, like, imagine you're walking down the street here in the city, and you pass a, a, a playground, right? And, there, you know, there's kids playing everywhere. They're all over the place. You see an adult uh, walking over to, towards the basketball courts. They have a clipboard in their hand and a mesh bag full of basketballs on their shoulder. Right? They, they walk up to, to the crowd of kids playing, and they choose 10 players from the crowd there. 
They divide them into two groups of five and have the players start running drills off of the clipboard. They give instructions on how to play the game. Well, your conclusion is going to be, well, that person's probably a coach and they've just formed a basketball team, right? We discern that from our cultural context. And the same sort of thing is happening here with Jesus. Twelve disciples, twelve tribes coming down from the mountain. Blessings and curses, talk of the kingdom. And on top of that, sick people are being healed and people with unclean spirits are cured. This is it. Jesus is the long-awaited king. He is forming a restored people, a restored Israel. He's, he's literally healing people as he goes. So there's understandable excitement. People have read the cultural clues. We're told a great crowd of disciples is present beyond just the 12, and a great multitude of other people from all over the place have showed up. So with all this expectation, all this energy, all, all this action going on, this is where Jesus flips everybody's expectations upside down, as he has a habit of doing. We've seen what, what God's kingdom is, right? God with his people in a place. And this is what is breaking in through Jesus' arrival. Now we turn to what God's kingdom is all about. And as we turn to this, we see God's kingdom breaking through in two ways. The first is simply in the crowd that has amassed. While Jesus has chosen 12 disciples as a representation of the restored Israel, we're also told that people have come from the south, from Jerusalem, and from the north, from Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon are Gentile regions to the north. And here we're starting to get a glimpse at the full restoration of all things. So the new heavens and the new earth where all things are being made right. It's a blessing that extends globally to all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. It's a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that he would be a blessing to all nations. This isn't what the people are expecting at the moment, though. The excitement's about what Jesus is doing for Israel there in the moment. But this is a foreshadowing of what is to come, even here. And you could argue that really the rest of the New Testament is working out that, well, what is going on. Like, like the good news of Jesus is going out to the world and we're trying to figure out what that means. That's the story that we're still a part of. The second way that we see God's kingdom breaking through is seen in the blessings and the woes that Jesus starts his sermon with. The historian Justo Gonzalez likes to point out that one of the main characteristics of Luke's gospel is great reversals. We saw it when Mary is chosen to give birth to Jesus. In Mary's song in Luke 1, she sings, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. And the words that come out of Jesus' mouth now are indeed that same great reversal. Verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now there's four blessings with four corresponding woes that Jesus speaks. Verse 25 says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. So there's a contrast that's being made. The poor and the rich, those who are hungry 
and those who are satisfied, those who weep and those who laugh, those who are hated and reviled and excluded, and those who are well spoken of. The former are spoken of as blessed, and the latter are told, woe to you. What a stunning rebuke of the idol that power can be that we have here. We have the most powerful kingdom imaginable, God's kingdom bursting at the seams. Everyone can see what is happening. All the signs are there. Demons are being cast out, messages of liberation. The cultural references say, this is the guy. Power is just going out from Jesus and healing people. I don't even know what that looks like. And yet the kingdom is not given to those who are rich and well off. It is given to the poor present tense, even available at that very moment. So a note about this. Um, we're, we're not just talking here um, when we're talking about the poor and the rich, um, just of material wealth or the lack thereof. Throughout scripture, the word poor is used to describe those who lack money and material goods. Yes, but uh, it also describes those who are powerless in society those who are taken advantage of, those who suffer injustice, those who are socially underprivileged, or those who are oppressed and shoved off to the margins. But being poor here is not spoken of as a virtue in and of itself. The blessing is not being poor or hungry or hated. The blessing is the kingdom. It's the presence of God with his people in his place. It's open to all. It's a picture of peace, abundance, healing to God's people in Israel and to God's people throughout the world. This is what Jesus invites us into. Okay, so what about the rich, the satisfied, the ones spoken well of in society? Woe to you, Jesus says. Now, woe, he says, not cursed, right? This is a difference from the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy. This is a warning, not a pronouncement of a curse. But it's a warning about being too easily satisfied with anything less than the fullness of the kingdom of God. You may have wealth now. You may be living the good life. You've got status and prestige and everything. But this is a warning. Because if that is all you have now, that is all you're ever going to get. The thing about riches, about status and wealth and the pursuit of whatever makes you feel good right now is that they so easily isolate you and distract you and numb you from the things that God wants to heal in your life. So what does this mean for all of us? How do you respond to the inbreaking of God's kingdom into your life? Because the kingdom is still breaking in. Yes, Jesus dies on a cross, he is raised from the dead, and he ascends into heaven, which is depicted as an enthronement in Luke's continuation of the gospel story in the book of Acts. And we await Jesus' return when he finally does away with all the evil and death, hunger and violence and injustice, and people from every nation and tribe and tongue gather around the throne in praise in the new and restored creation. That's our future hope. 
But in the meantime, Jesus is still sending us his Holy Spirit. He is calling people to follow him. Follow him. He's calling you to follow him. So how do we respond? Well, in one sense, the rest of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain in the rest of Luke 6 and 7 is all about the ethics of living in God's kingdom, even right now. So um, come back the next couple weeks. We're going to look at that over the next few weeks of the Advent season. But if the blessing really is the kingdom, if it really is the presence of God with his people in his place, on the one hand, if where you are at is in a place of need, of hunger, of oppression, of marginalization, whatever that is, the kingdom of God is open to you. It's open to everyone. And us, the church, Emmanuel, we are called to be an outpost of the kingdom. It's on us to care for each other, to look out for each other, to point each other to and sometimes even carry each other to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who heals and frees us. But on the other hand, we need to take the woes seriously. We miss out on all the really good stuff when we're too easily satisfied with riches and comfort. So think about this. Why did you move to New York City if you moved to the city? Why are you going to the school that you are? Why are you aiming for that apartment in that neighborhood? Why that job or that position? Why that vacation? Why are you doing what you are doing in your life? Right? You don't want to be in a place where you aimed too low and you got it and that's all you get. What do you miss out on? It's the presence of God. It's Jesus. It's a flourishing world. So many of the things that we are pursuing are just our own ways of setting up our own kingdoms. And in that, we're no different than Adam and Eve chasing after power. And even the most successful kingdoms throughout human history have a legacy of shame and brokenness. So I'll leave you with, with, with a question. Are you setting up your own kingdom? Or are you looking to Jesus' kingdom? Let's look to Jesus. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.